the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Changemakers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. In today's world, we need the skills to make a lasting impact when we speak. We use our voices to express ourselves and to achieve our goals. Joining us today is Denise Woods, one of the nation's most sought-after vocal coaches. Denise provides valuable lessons and exercises that all of us can use to overcome common voice and speech problems and to become confident, effective communicators. Denise has been the voice behind the voice for the last 20 years. She has trained executives for public speaking at major corporations, coached Hollywood actors and broadcast news anchors, and has prepared NBA and NFL athletes for on-camera commentary. She is the author of the book, The Power of Voice. Welcome, Denise. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Joan. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So, Denise, I want to begin by talking a little bit about you. The list of people with whom you have worked is is really quite impressive. So how did you get started as a vocal coach? I started in the early 90s. Juilliard, which is my alum, which, which I am alumna uh, of, uh, called me to join the faculty. And it was in 1992, and I was the first African-American woman on the drama division faculty, which I'm so proud of. They called me. And uh, I thought they wanted me to come and teach acting. They wanted me to join the voice and speech faculty. And I really have to say I was an amazing voice and speech student because I was previously an opera singer. So I could hear sounds of speech as if they were musical notes. So for them to come and ask me to join the faculty, it really sort of resonated with me, and I was proud to do it. And then when I joined faculty, I kept getting calls from Broadway shows to come and coach the actors because they couldn't be heard in the theater, or their articulation wasn't as crisp as it should have been, or it it could have even have been a dialect that they needed. And then I got one call from someone in Hollywood to coach an actor who needed a very specific dialect, and it was the rage. And then people started calling. I was still in New York at the time on faculty at Juilliard, and I kept getting calls from people in Hollywood that would say, oh, this dialect is very specific. Can you do it? And I say yes. And this was before Skype. This was even before email. We didn't even have email back then. And um, it was just it was just sending in tapes. I had uh, literally cassette tapes that I was sending back and forth to clients. And so one client just led to another and to another. And then in 2000, the head of the uh, School of Theater at California Institute of the Arts invited me to come out and join their faculty and head the speech department there. And I thought, I think this is a good time to go because my 12-year-old son was in middle school and I knew I had a window of time that I could break away and take him to another environment uh, without it disrupting his life completely. And so I took the leap and my first job in Hollywood as a dialect coach was working with Will Smith in the film Ali. And the rest is history. 
and one thing just led to another and to another, and uh, it, it just it's panned out to be an extraordinary. You know, it's interesting because I use my voice to make a living, but I don't think the average person really pays much attention to the way he or she speaks. And when I was preparing for this conversation, <laughs> I kept thinking, oh boy, she's going to hear my jersey and she's going to just laugh. I knew, that, I knew that's what you were going to say. <laughs> but do you believe that, Denise? Do you think that we really don't pay enough attention to the way we speak? Well, you know, I think when we hear ourselves, uh, you know, everybody, when they hear themselves on, on a voicemail or something recorded, they go, oh, my gosh, that sounds like I, I don't sound like that. And I was telling someone the other day, because they were asking, how come people are so shocked by the way they sound when they hear themselves played back? And I said, it's the same thing. When we look at ourselves in the mirror, we go, oh, my God, I didn't realize I'd gained those 10 pounds, <laughs> you know? <laughs> So so we have this perception of how we sound, and then when we hear it, we go, oh, my gosh, I didn't realize that I have um, a, a, a dialect or, you know, that I have a, a slight, you know, hissy S, sibilant S. I, I didn't realize those things. And then the only way it becomes a real matter of concern is when you have to use your voice for a living. If it's every day, people go, eh, well, so be it. But you have no idea when in your life you're going to be called upon to make that speech. Um, to, I, I have a, a wonderful client who goes to her class reunion, and it's a, it's a pretty big deal. Um, it was a private all-girls school, and they all have, these women have become these amazing individuals all over the world. And um, she was asked to be the keynote speaker, and she was floored. She's an engineer, and she never had to use her voice outside of maybe an occasional presentation, but she had to use her voice there. And she really didn't realize the power that she had in, in her breath and, and the ability to be poised and the ability to articulate, and more importantly, the ability to captivate an audience. She had no idea. And so when it, it, it's put on your radar, uh, um, then you say, oh, I think I need to address this. But I think that it's probably on everybody's radar right now because, because of the climate that we're in, it be it socially, politically, um, medically, what we're going through, you know, just being an advocate. Uh, I know my mom, the early stages of, 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 um, of this pandemic, my mom lives in a beautiful assisted living in seven minutes from where I live. And uh, they did not want to mask up. And there was no ordinance, they said, for masking. And I said, but why do you need an ordinance? Common sense tells you that if you cover, and if, if you cover, you know, you're not spreading the droplets. And so I went, <laughs> I went all the way to City Hall. I became an advocate for the people in my mother's assisted living. This was in March, the end of March, beginning of April. And I got the, the I was instrumental in getting the ordinance passed that said that they must wear PPE in, in, in these kinds of facilities. Um, so, so it doesn't even have to be a platform where you're changing the world. I changed my mother's world, mm -hmm. and I really mm -hmm. contend that I, I really feel I could have potentially saved some lives. So it's that kind of thing that makes you think, I can use my voice. And the more you use it, the more you desire to use it, the better you become. So just sticking with the mask concept for a moment, when we have that mask on, you know, we may tend to feel silenced. Is there a tip that you can offer our listeners to help us project and speak clearly so that we're understood while wearing a mask? Absolutely. Your voice is an instrument, and now more than ever, you have to think of it as such. A lot of times we don't think of our voices as an instrument or as this independent thing from us because we have we have physical gestures we've got eyes that people can look into they can see our lips so therefore even if we're not articulating they can look at our mouths and see what we're saying just the visual and now that the visual is taken away now that we're masked and I wear dark glasses 
um, because I'm very sensitive to light because I have light eyes. And so I, I have dark glasses on, and usually I have a cap or a hat and, um, uh, and, and dark glasses and a mask so no one can see my face. So it is all about the voice. And what I do, Joan, is I make it, I find the musicality in, in, in vocal variety, in my ability to really lean into certain consonant sounds. And so not that it's arbitrary or it feels, it feels um, contrived in any way, but I find a real need for speech, a real need to communicate this idea, even if it's just in the grocery store. And I work on it every day. Every day I go out, I work on my goal is to impact somebody, to make an impact in someone's life. Even if it's just, I like how your hair looks today. I like those sunglasses you have on. But if it's, you know, in the, the vitriolic kind of uh, uh, society that we've, we've now come to, you kind of want to shed some light in somebody's life on, at any given moment because I believe in the law of reciprocity. If you put it out, it comes back to you. And so if we put it out there and we're masked, we've got to be able to articulate it in a very specific way, in a very conscious way, so that speech becomes conscious, a conscious choice to make these sounds, to use your voice, to use the upper portion of your voice and the lower portion of your voice and everything in between. I think one of the things that we forget today, we're so caught up in everything being digital, you know, texting mm-hmm. and emailing mm-hmm. and social media posts that we forget the power that we have with our voice. And we forget that people make judgments about us from the way we speak, whether it be our grammar or if we're, you know, we sound timid or if we sound forceful, we have the power to really portray to another what we want and how we we want to achieve it. Completely. I wish I wish this was visual because the whole time you were speaking just now, my not just my head is is nodding. My whole body is nodding in agreement because we have to form the narrative. We should not let anyone dictate who we are or how we should sound or how we should identify. That's the bottom line, is how do I identify? I might look one way, I might sound a particular way, but how I identify, how I identify is what I want to put into the world. And I will be darned if anyone is going to take that away from me. It's empowering. It is so empowering to put your spirit into the world uh, vocally so that if, in fact, I want to speak a particular way, um, and we call it we call it code switching in African-American culture because everybody code switch. Everybody code switches. We go from one sound to another sound and from this sound to another sound. And I liken it to, you know, I don't just have one pair of shoes. I don't have one outfit. I wouldn't wear a pair of jeans to a red carpet event. I have several different choices that in my closet to choose from depending on the event. And I think we should have the same amount of, of choices vocally. And we should use them with a sense of command and power. I liken it to um, the, the, the difference between having a box of crayons with eight crayons in it or a box of 64. So you got five shades of green now as opposed to one single green crayon. And, and, and the thing about this, the reason why I used the, the crayon analogy is because it's still the green crayon. It's still you. You are still your authentic self. It all emanates from your center, from your core. And so therefore, you're just finding different ways of expressing that. A lot of times people feel, oh, if I do this work, then it's really not me. You know, I'm, I'm you know, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm this particular person from this particular region. And if I don't sound like that, then people are going to say I'm a sellout, or I'm trying to be something that I'm not. And that is so far from the truth. And that is so far from the work that I do. Because as I said, we have that green crayon. Now I'm giving you five different shades of the green crayon. Denise, what are some of the biggest problems that you've helped people overcome? Trauma. Trauma. That's the biggest one. And that could mean 
physical abuse. That could mean psychological abuse. But how, tra- or, or just a, a, an accident. Um, you know, I had a client one time that he came in and his jaw was so tight. Like he was speaking through his teeth. And I couldn't, he couldn't open up his mouth. He wouldn't open up his mouth. And he explained why. Because when I came, he said, have you ever been punched? Or have you ever been, had, had any type of physical trauma to your jaw? And then he explained to me, and I won't go into it, but um, the, it can be physical trauma. It can be psychological trauma that really shuts us down. That when we shut down physically or emotionally or psychologically, it affects the voice. And so what I do is a series of breathing exercises, relaxation exercises and breathing exercises that gets down to the core, your center. Your breath gets you centered into your being. How many times uh, in, in every culture, um, and particularly in Western cultures, uh, where men are said, or men are told when they're little boys, suck it up, men don't cry. Or, you know, are those tears? And that's even with little girls, too. Are those tears? You, you want me to give you something to cry about? And so we are really not nurtured to go deeply in our emotions. I mean, in, in fact, we see it as a liability as opposed to an asset. And the deeper we go emotionally, the deeper we go with our breath. And the deeper we go with our breath, the more connected we are to our source. And then when you breathe deeply like this, you've got a voice that that really comes from a wonderfully open orifice um, and, and completely unobstructed, and then it releases into the world to your audience in a very expressive way. Denise, when I opened the conversation, I mentioned that you've worked with really quite an impressive list of people. Is there a story that you can share with us that really brings joy to your life? Mm, mm, mm. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, I worked with Will Smith on Ali, and uh, he, and this was in 2001, and he Everybody knows that he's this gregarious, wonderful human being, uh, but I saw it, and I saw his work ethic. I saw his humanity. I saw his talent, and I contend that it's all three of those. It's, it's a level of humanity. It's a level of, of, of talent and a work ethic. This man stayed in character Ali. He stayed in Ali's voice and his mannerisms the entire time we worked together for three months, 24-7. He embodied this man's essence. And, and so we're in, in, in our session because we worked three times a week um, for three months before we started filming. And we're in our session and his assistant called and, um, and he said, oh yeah, yeah, give it, yes, absolutely, give it to her. And then he calls his current wife to tell her that he just had his assistant give money for his ex-wife's mother to purchase a car. Mm -hmm. And I was blown away. It's his ex-wife's mother. He wanted to buy her a car. And, And he called his current wife to tell her that he was doing that. And it just... It warmed my heart, and and it and I'm getting emotional right now. It's just this wonderful story of of a person's humanity and the ability to share that as an artist. And that's when when you see the behind the scenes of these these stars, and when we're seeing this great work, it's because it comes from a beautiful source, a, a person who knows their worth, a person who knows their voice, a person who appreciates their voice and the voices of others. And I'm so happy that you shared that story because I think today in particular, more than ever, I I think we need to hear more about acts of kindness and that we all have the power Mm -hmm. to do similar acts within our own lives. Mm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because that's what really strengthens your voice. 
you know, it's giving. It's it's the giving of yourself, the act of giving that empowers you and 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 releases all of the trauma or all of the, you know, whatever has been placed on you in life when you give it away, when you release it. And that's what this is. I tell people, your voice is a gift. The way Will Smith gifted his ex-mother-in-law was so, and, 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 and if he ever hears this, he would go, I, I don't even remember that. It was, it was probably such a part of who he is, but it, it, it left such an indelible impression on me. The same way he did that is what we should do with our voices. Our voices are gifts. And I tell clients that I want you to see that blue Tiffany box wrapped in a beautiful white bow that's your voice and when you give somebody a gift for their birthday for christmas we take time to prepare and really find the right gift and it's got and the right card to go along with the gift we it's painstaking sometimes what we put into the gift that we give people that we love i say make your voice the very same way Give your voice, extend your voice, release your voice as if it were a gift. The book is The Power of Voice, A Guide to Making Yourself Heard. If you'd like to learn more about Denise and her work, you can visit speakitclearly.com. Denise, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. This is wonderful, Joan. Thank you. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you feel lost on your journey to health and happiness? Then let us guide you on your path, personalized actions towards health. Your path is a series of choices you act on every day. We guide you on a personalized journey of dietary, exercise, genetic, supplement, and lifestyle choices that lead you to optimal health and happiness. Often taking the road less traveled leads to liberation. Your path is personal. Your journey, like you, is unique. Take action today. Head to bestpathforme.com. Again, that's bestpathforme.com. Hi, this is Joan Herman. Did you know that Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life publishes a free monthly digital magazine that can be read online or emailed to your inbox? Every month, nationally recognized leaders in their field provide information to educate, inspire, and motivate you. We believe in a holistic approach to life, incorporating mind, body, and spirit. Check out a copy of 24-7 Magazine, visit CYACYL.com, and be sure to tell your friends. It's time for To Your Health. Joining us today to talk about COVID and medical bills is Lori Gardner, a registered nurse, patient advocate, and board-certified health and wellness coach. Lori assists people with all aspects of their health care. Welcome, Lori. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks, Joan, for having me today. Lori, for about a year now, many people have been racking up COVID-19 medical bills. What are a few of the most important things we need to know? So first, for everybody listening, it's so important for you all to know what your insurer is covering during this COVID testing time. It's been pretty, pretty confusing, even for us as uh, advocates. But the Healthcare Enhancement Act was um, enacted on April 24th of this past year. This provides $25 billion to cover the cost of COVID care so that this care can be covered, but people are still getting charged. We see this all the time. So it's important to do your homework and be prepared which means you can get on your insurance company's patient portal, you can see what they are covering and know exactly what they will cover. Do this ahead of time. Don't wait to you know, get your services and, and then look at your um, bill. A lot of insurance companies have contracted with LabCorp or Quest. They'll bill those companies directly, so you shouldn't get a bill. If you don't have insurance, John, the lab should submit that invoice to the federal program and get it paid. So as I said, get on your patient portal, Make sure you know what they um, have and make that call. Make the call to your insurance company. If you're not sure, note down the reference number. you got to have your documentation. A lot of these insurance companies, I know mine is excellent now. You can just do a live chat, and they get back to you right away. So there's no reason why us as a consumer shouldn't have more information. But in general, most insurance companies have agreed that the deductible will not come into play 
when they are covering COVID testing, whether it's a test or um, care. But we have seen some clients getting billed, and we just make the necessary phone calls, and that goes away. So, again, that should be evident on your portal. Uh, normally, you have to pay that, whatever, $1,500 or $2,000 deductible before the company, the insurance company, will help you pay. But most of them, not all, but most of them are waiving that, so you should get immediate coverage. So is contacting the insurance company the only way that we can determine if we're, something we're responsible for? Or is there another way that, you know, we can learn if a bill is something that we're responsible for? There's a few ways. Um, you know, check your uh, insurance portal. But we, for our clients, actually also check at the provider. We would call LabQuest or the doctor's office or the hospital to find out, you know, sometimes things go awry with the coding and that can change everything. But now there could be a lot of bills that need review and there's definitely overcharges and errors that we're seeing. But we put the, um, we put these reviewing of the bills in kind of three categories, Joan. One is somebody who's uninsured with COVID. This actually, believe it or not, could be a plus as long as the government picks up the tab. So that's what that new act was for this $25 billion to cover that. If you're hospitalized, you have an emergency room visit, utilize an ambulance or facility, that um, those claims should be going to the Federal Health Resources Services Administration for reimbursement. That's for the uninsured COVID person. You know, again, uh, this is such a complicated system. This may sound like it's really smooth and streamlined. It's not. That's where kind of we come into play or you as the consumer just have to make all the calls to whether it's the hospital, the government, your private insurance to get the right information. It is quite a task, but definitely worth doing because a lot of money is paid that shouldn't be paid. The second group, Joan, is those that are insured um, by a fully funded plan. A lot of folks that we talk to don't even know if their employer um, plan is fully funded or self-funded. The difference is a fully funded plan is a company says, yes, I'm going to contract with a health insurance company. They're going to charge me premiums. They're going to take care of my employees' medical costs. So in this case, we always say to people, Make sure you know your coverage. Every year, your summary benefit plan comes out, know it. And get your summary so you know before you have any service, you're going to go check and you ask, you know, is this covered? Whether you have to call both the insurance company and your provider, that's what we suggest doing. But for COVID and these fully funded plans, as I said, most of them have waived this, the deductible. They call it this cost sharing. Normally, we have to cost share with our insurance companies, right? That's why we have to pay deductible. That's why we pay co-pays. But in the case of COVID, they're actually, most of them are waiving this cost sharing, so they should fully cover it. And the third uh, and last group are those people covered by their employer in what we call a self-funded plan. This is where a company decides to self-insure, not, you know, a health insurance company. They self-insure in hopes of saving on insurance premiums. Why people don't realize the difference is because they have like a United Healthcare or Cigna or Aetna, and they get you know, documents with that on it. They basically are serving as more of an administrative position, not the person or the company entity paying for the care. The company itself is paying for the care. So this does expose the company to risk, especially during this pandemic, as unexpected federal claims are generated and coming in. Um, these plans, in our way of thinking, are um, a little bit more cause for worry, especially if they do not opt into waiving the cost-sharing model, which is possible. So again, same advice. Make sure you know what it covers. It all has to be documented and um, written down on, you know, check on your patient portal or your actual plan itself. But as a general rule, as long as you stay in network with your insurance providers and you let the insurance company know you are hospitalized and are prepared and, and you as a consumer are prepared to pay the deductible and co-pays, you have some protection. So, Lord, if you could sum up everything you just discussed and, and basically bullet point it, what advice do you offer to help us avoid getting into trouble financially? Great question. Know your insurance plan and what it covers. We are a passive world when we enter into those healthcare doors, I say. Mm -hmm. You know, we leave it all up to, almost we leave it to chance. Don't do it. Just like you, you know, you know, your car payments, you know, your mortgage, you know, your home insurance policy, you got to know your health insurance policy, even more importantly. So bullet point, know what's covered, know what your deductible is. I usually recommend financially to always have enough money to cover your deductible every year and potentially your maximum out of pocket. Don't be shy to ask a lot of questions and be aggressive with the questions you ask in terms of the insurance company and what that claim says. You got to know what an EOB is, an explanation of benefits, and you need to check both sides of the, the aisle, if you will, the insurance company and the um, the provider. Sometimes the coding's wrong, 
at the end of the day, you're only responsible to pay what's on the explanation of benefits from the insurance company. So that number should be compared to what's coming from the provider, the doctor, the hospital. Oftentimes that is not the same. So, which is why this is going to sound really crazy as a bullet point, never pay the first bill from your provider. I can't emphasize that enough because there's a lot of adjustment and review that goes on and you could end up paying more money. You have to wait and watch it until it's, it's gone through all that. So it's really, um, those are the biggest things. Lori, thank you so much for joining us. If you would like to learn more about Lori and her work, or if you need help with anything that Lori just discussed, you can visit her website, healthlinkadvocates.com, or as always, you can hear more from Lori by visiting our website, cyacyl.com slash Lori. We'll be right back. This is WNYM, Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City. Back to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. In 2012, my next guest, Michael Shao, undertook an expedition deep into the Himalaya into a remote valley that has been closed off to outsiders for decades. What unfolded in the mountains forced him to question his values and his own identity. Michael is here today to share this story. He is the author of the book, A Story of Karma. Welcome, Michael. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Joan. Thank you for having me on the show. So, Michael, let's start off by talking a little bit about what you were experiencing in life that led you on this expedition. Yeah, well, so it's kind of funny. I had wanted to go to Nepal since I was a teenager, since I was 15 years old. I don't know what it was about Nepal, what drew me to the Himalaya, um, but I just had this deep yearning to go there for as long as I can remember. And I remember my, my sister, actually, one year she gave me this this present, uh, this Lonely Planet book. It was trekking um, in the Himalaya of Nepal. And I remember um, just tearing through the pages so fast I couldn't even read anything. And all, all I could think about was uh, was going over there. I was just fascinated by the people and the culture and the mountains, of course. And, and, uh, and, and yeah, so that's kind of what sparked it. And then, in you know, it was actually until my early 30s, though, before I was able to get there because um, as I was kind of growing my career, I didn't have the time. And when I was younger, I didn't necessarily have the funds or the money. But, um, yeah, so my wife, Chantal, and I, one day we were sitting down with this gentleman, and he had been trekking through uh, through the Nepal Himalaya for, for over 20, uh, 20 years. And uh, we sat down. I told him about my passion for for going there, and he said, "I've got to tell you about this little place." This is back in 2011. He said, "I got to tell you about this little place. So this uh, it's called the Lost Valley of Narfu." And uh, and he kind of had me at the Lost Valley, but uh, but yeah, it was this valley that uh, had been closed off for for generations, and. You know, for 800 years, the people there had been living much in the same way that they'd always been living. And so, um, so I was looking through his pictures, and I thought, oh my goodness, this, these are this, these are like the places I saw back when I was 15 in that Lonely Planet book, and it just hooked me. And, and so, Chantal and I, we decided to uh, to put together a little team because our friend told us that the valley, since it was since it was open now, it was going to be experiencing unprecedented change. Uh, you know, with tourism coming in and um, you know, cultural change, social change. And so we thought, okay, let's put a little team together of artists. A nature, we have a nature artist, like a painter, a photographer, a musician. And Chantal and I, we could do some filming. And uh, we'll just try and learn and observe from the people and, and capture a moment in time. And then I came across this picture of this, this pyramid-looking mountain. Um, and being a mountaineering fanatic, I just totally fell in love. It was like being in love at first sight, <clears throat> you know, seeing this picture. And I thought, you know, I have to go and try and climb this mountain. While you were there, what did you experience and what did it teach you? Oh, that's a big question. So there are a lot of things unfolded when we were in, in Nepal. So we got into this lost valley and it took us about a week to trek into this place. And if you imagine these, there's actually two main villages in this valley. Both are sitting at about 14,000 feet in elevation. Um, but going there, I, I remember it's, it felt like stepping back into the 17th century. Um, so just being with the people, living with some in their homes, uh, you know, learning about their way of life and being in that kind of environment, it just was a totally different way out there. I mean, it's full-on survival. The people, you know, in these places, there's no electricity. There was no toilets at the time. As I said, they've been living the same way as they've been living for the last 800 years. And so it was just, um, 
I, I didn't think there were still places like that in the world that existed like that. Uh, you have to imagine, you know, getting to get there, these, these high mountain passes. Uh, the people are semi-nomadic. They move around with the seasons. So, um, yeah, so that to me was just seeing a different part of the world like that just totally opened my eyes. Um, but then a lot of things started unraveling in the mountains. It took me two days of uh, reconnaissance to find this Pyramid Mountain, and we finally found it. And uh, it was the most glorious thing that I could have ever dreamed of. But um, the closer we got to it, the more things started falling apart, started unraveling. And, uh, for example, we got caught in a snowstorm at 17,000 feet, and, and, um, and my gear bags with my climbing gear, the mule that was carrying it took off and was two days behind us. So all these things started falling apart, and it forced me to hunker down in this little, uh, this little village called Fu, which is the most remote outpost in the entire valley. And, uh, and it was there that I, I was kind of going through this struggle because I was questioning, you know, why is it that my dream's being crushed before my eyes here, this dream that I've had for so long? Um, and at the same time, I started connecting with a lot of the locals and, and one in particular who told me about the way of life out there and just the struggle and, um, you know, particularly for kids and how kids have to leave uh, the village to get education if they want any education beyond the village education. And, and uh, you know, infant mortality is high. Um, from the ages of six or seven years old, the kids have to start working in the field. Um, by 15, 16 at that time, uh, girls, for example, would start having to get married and have their own family. So all of these things I started learning and kind of put um, this goal of climbing the mountain in, uh, in comparison, I suppose. Uh, just, you know, <laughs> how did something like that actually matter or why am I spending so much energy and, and time on, on and thought on that when there's all these more important things going on? And eventually it led us to this other little village called Narm where, um, and I wouldn't have gone to Narm had, uh, had, had I climbed the mountain, but it was there that I ended up meeting this little girl named Karma and, and we, the reason why I met her was because she was in this little school, and there were no other schools in the whole valley, but we caught wind in Nar, there's this little stone school. And, and so we get there, and there's Karma teaching English numbers uh, to a group of kids. And she's seven years old at that time. And so if you imagine this seven-year-old girl um, teaching to a group of kids about three to seven. Uh, the kids are in raggedy clothes and sunburned to the point they have to They've got blisters on their face and, uh, you know, snot dripping down their nose. And, you know, and then you have these just magnificent 7,000 meter peaks all around you. It was just a beautiful scene. And it was from that moment that um, that we sparked uh, a karmic connection. Uh, but actually, my wife, Chantal, me and this little girl uh, opened this connection. And so and that for the next eight years following has developed um, into this connection of love uh, with Karma and her, eventually her little sister Pemba and then their whole family. And so the biggest thing I've learned um, from this entire experience is uh, I've learned a deeper sense of, of love and what that's taught me about myself. Uh, I've learned, um, you know, the importance of not living too much in the future, uh, you know, struggling over things and expectations and goals that we might have in our mind, but, you know, paying attention to those moments that uh, if, if or if our environment's trying to guide us into a into another area or another another way, even though we might not understand what that might be at that time, but um, but yeah, just trusting in that and trusting in that with love. As you were sharing your story, Michael, all that I kept thinking about was what we've all been through with this pandemic, with having to simplify our life and having to go inward and and losing a lot of the things that we take for granted. It's like you experienced the beauty and the simplicity of life. Do you, do you think we're being directed in that way? Yeah, I think um, I think that's a very good point because one of the things I've noticed as well as we've been going through this uh, this whole pandemic is that it's really um, I guess empowered us to go inward. Uh, I think particularly in the modern world, we're we're typically used to living more outward, you know, outward exploration, whether it's uh, furthering our careers or our lives in, in whatever ways. But um, but this, as you say, it's kind of forced us to hunker down and go more inward, really ask the tough questions. You know, who am I? Uh, what does this life mean to me? Um, you know, what is important to me in this life? And, and I think it's, it's kind of guiding us in a way to, um, to perhaps, uh, you know, realign in some ways with those things. The book is A Story of Karma. If you would like to get more information about Michael and his work, you can visit michaelshaw.com that's s-c-h-a-u-c-h michaelshaw.com michael thank you so much for joining us thank you very much joan for having me
This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. This is Susan McLaughlin from SMC Ventures, and one of my favorite platforms for small business is LinkedIn. LinkedIn has added some features in the last year that are making it more of a social media platform than a business networking platform. I think LinkedIn networking is brilliant. It's a great way to find business connections and B2B opportunities. Are you looking for someone you can partner with? There's a recommendation from someone you trust in business. Do you want to be introduced to someone? Look for a contact who knows someone at a particular company and ask for the introduction. Having success on LinkedIn is all about what you want to achieve and working together with others. LinkedIn is a collaborative place. If you just show up and post and don't engage, then you're really just talking to yourself. That's not what's going to drive your business. Sharing articles, white papers, and business information about your company is perfect for LinkedIn. This is the place to talk about recent business improvements, the new client win, the great job one of your associates just did, and what your company is all about. Making sure your profile is professional and has contact information is also important. Having an updated profile about your business is essential. Use a photo for the header of your page that tells people what your business is about. Have a logo in your photo or a photo of you in the bio. There are quite a few people with the same name or companies with similar names. So making sure people know it's your business or you personally is essential. Having a robust LinkedIn profile will help other businesses and business people know what your business is all about. If you need help with your social media for business, give us a call. You can check out our website at smcventures.biz or visit us on Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. This is Susan McLaughlin from SMC Ventures. Simple social media. Is it hard for you to make a decision at times? Or does it just seem difficult to solve a problem, whether at work or in your family life? Hi, I'm Jessica L. Conrad. I have a master's in holistic health studies, and I am an ICF certified coach. I support all women at a crossroads in life by helping them find clarity and direction. I specialize in endometriosis and infertility. Here is a technique to try next time you find yourself in this situation. It is called the three-step process. It is three simple questions to ask yourself. Number one, what worked well in the past? Number two, why did it work well? Which strengths and natural gifts of yours did you use? And number three, how can you use those strengths and gifts to help with this issue or achieve your current goal? To learn more, to book a free discovery call or ask a question, please visit my website at jessicalconrad.com. There, you will also be able to download other free gifts to help you move forward in life. Do you have a visible bump on the side of the foot, tenderness in or around the big toe, difficulty moving the big toe, and or pain in the big toe when walking? If you answered yes to any or all of these questions, you may have a bunion. Hi. I am Dr. Anand Joshi, podiatrist practicing in Woodland Park, New Jersey at Advanced Foot Care of NJ LLC. Bunions are abnormalities of the feet that can cause a bump to develop on the side of the big toe joint. This can cause the toe to turn inwards. Women are more likely to have bunion pain due to increased pressures from narrow footwear. Having a family history of bunions is also a risk factor. Additionally, some conditions, including rheumatoid arthritis or polio, increase the likelihood of developing a bunion. Here are some things you can do to treat a bunion. Wear proper fitting shoes without high heels. Also, using a bunion pad from a shoe store or drugstore helps protect a bunion from extra pressure. Applying ice for 10-minute increments with a cloth-covered ice pack can also help reduce the inflammation. A podiatrist can prescribe custom-made orthotics that can assist with stabilizing the deformity and eventually slowing down the progression of the deformity. If a person's bunion does not subside and causes continued pain, surgery may be necessary. If you'd like more information or to schedule an appointment, please visit our website, footpainnj.com. Hi, this is Joan Herman. Did you know that Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life publishes a free monthly digital magazine that can be read online or emailed to your inbox? Every month, nationally recognized leaders in their field provide information to educate, inspire, and motivate you. We believe in a holistic approach to life, incorporating mind, body, and spirit. Check out a copy of 24-7 Magazine, visit CYACYL.com, and be sure to tell your friends. 
live a happy, productive life, but sometimes we just need a little help. Our Coach on Call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now. Joining me today is Linda Mitchell, a certified transition coach, reinvention expert, and speaker who empowers people that are stuck, overwhelmed, or ready for change to release the struggle, gain clarity, and evolve to their highest purpose as they move through life's challenges and transitions. Linda is here today to discuss how to create a resiliency reservoir. Welcome, Linda. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for inviting me back, Joan. Linda, these are unusually difficult times. The news is depressing. There's a national and global crisis, and the loss and grief people are experiencing is immense. How do we create a resilient mindset during these tough times? Resiliency is one of those skills that requires you to struggle or falter a bit in order to hone the skill of bouncing back. The more hurdles you face, the more resiliency you naturally develop. Some days will be more challenging than others. And just like having a spare tire in your trunk, isn't it a good idea to have a full tank, a resiliency reservoir of sorts, to help us bounce back in tough times? Accept the messiness of life. Just allow yourself to stumble and get back up again. I believe that adopting a healthy, feel-good routine will boost your resiliency and your immunity at the same time. Here's some practices I really believe will help. First, engage in a gratitude practice. And I know people have heard this one before, and for good reason. It really works. But here's the key. You can't just do it haphazardly. Choose a day of the week or a regular time each day to write down at least a few things you're grateful for. And challenge yourself to never repeat an entry. After a few weeks, you'll have an amazing gratitude list that will be a really wonderful pick-me-up on those down days. It will help you see that even during difficult struggles, there are some reasons to smile. Next, we've got to be a container of compassion. And this can be tough, but it has a really big payoff. When others try your patience, the quickest path to harmony is compassion. That's the ability to relate to others suffering without judging them. People who give and receive compassion have stronger immune systems, experience less pain and suffering, and research shows they do bounce back faster from setbacks and hardships. That's building resiliency. And I should note that self-compassion is critical here too. So tame your inner critic and show yourself a little compassion. This fosters acceptance and resilience. And third, find ways to be flexible. Expecting things to be just as they always were, it's unrealistic and it accentuates suffering and keeps us from making necessary changes. So find new ways to create a little bit of happiness each day. And as you become more flexible, you'll discover new ways to deal with challenges. And this too creates resiliency. So these practices definitely help create a bounce back mindset and a resilience reservoir that you can tap into on those difficult days. Linda, we hear a lot about mindfulness and living in the present moment. Would that practice fit in? Would that help us become more resilient? Yeah, actually staying mindfully in the present moment is a great way to live and not just in difficult times. Because you see, it spontaneously expands your capacity for joy. Why? Because you begin to notice the small little pleasures in each moment that would normally go unnoticed. The more joy we notice, the easier it is to cope with adversity and to bounce back. So I encourage people to spend time in nature, Create intentional alone time and do things that bring you pleasure where you can really be in the moment. Don't have any expectations. Just simply be in the moment and notice and honor whatever comes up for you. Resilient people seem to be more positive and have a brighter outlook. Oh, yes, that is so true. And you know what? One easy and fun way to do that is to intentionally look for all the good things that happen in a day. Find little things to celebrate each day. Encourage those in your circle to do the same. This kind of gets us out of that normal pattern of focusing on all the stuff that's going wrong, you know, and so even taking a minute or two to celebrate the little steps that you take towards a larger goal is so important and so uplifting. Now, you don't have to throw a party, (laughs) just pause, acknowledge yourself and take a moment to really feel that joy in your body, kind of marinate in that good feeling for a minute and just take it all in. That's a meaningful way to celebrate your successes. Do this often. And encourage your family to do it, too. It kind of creates this playful, easy atmosphere in the home where we're all spending so much more time, right? So focusing on the good versus the imperfect 
is a healthy way to not just strengthen relationships and create more harmony, but it also creates resiliency. And you know, the more aligned you are with your true purpose and mission, the stronger you feel and the more resilient you become because you know deep down you're going to find a way to get through the tough stuff. Do things that make you laugh every day. Laughter is so healing and uplifting. Children laugh hundreds of times each day. Adults, not so much. But when we can laugh, even at ourselves, we're much more likely to find the positive in every situation. When we get stuck in the muck, the negativity, and the hardship, we don't bounce back as easily. But resilient people find ways to dig up something positive, even in the difficult circumstances. They naturally become more optimistic. So laugh every day. Try some of these practices for a week or two and see how differently you feel. You'll be creating your own resiliency reservoir. Linda, thank you so much for joining us. If you would like to learn more about Linda and her work, you can visit livinginspiredcoaching.com. Or as always, to hear more from Linda, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash Linda. Hi, this is Joan Herman. Did you know that Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life publishes a free monthly digital magazine that can be read online or emailed to your inbox? Every month, nationally recognized leaders in their field provide information to educate, inspire, and motivate you. We believe in a holistic approach to life, incorporating mind, body, and spirit. Check out a copy of 24-7 Magazine, visit CYACYL.com, and be sure to tell your friends. At highway speeds, the average text takes your eyes off the road for about five seconds. That's enough time to travel the length of a football field. StopTextsStopRex.org, brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Thank you for joining us. I hope you found the show informative. Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided is the opinion of our guest and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read the digital magazine, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications, LLC.